Would you mind telling me whose brain I did put in? And you won't be angry? I will not be angry. Abby someone. Abby someone. Abby who? Abby normal. This is the Abby Normal Podcast, here to tell you that you're weird and that's normal. If you're new here, this show is about all the things that make us feel abnormal. From the nonsense we lived through in middle school to the dysfunction we encounter in adulthood. There is so much to work with. We all feel weird in our own unique ways. And hearing about others weird can make us feel just that little bit more normal, more human. So we cover a lot of topics. They're funny and sweet and serious. But right now we're in the midst of talking about feeling weird in our own religious traditions. In the Not the Same series, we talked a lot about evangelicalism, but we've moved on from that particular brand of weird. And today we have the pleasure to talk to our friend Tyler about his own faith journey. I was a little nervous because, again, my journey is not very traditional. It's very different, and it kind of spans all of these different things. And Tyler and I met working in residence life at Fresno State. Most of his career has been in res life, leading the teams that provide housing for college students, creating a safe, fun learning environment for young adults. And though we didn't work together for very long, he stuck in my brain. He was kind and patient, and he wasn't afraid of tough conversations. In, wow. in any or there's all- a, We could talk about systemic change. <laughs> you give me the system okay, and I'll talk me, about- Right, so let me be spe- specific. Back then, we both had our first kid on the way. I now have a 14-year-old. Tyler now has six girls. We have six kids, a high schooler, just started high school. My gosh. I know, it's crazy. (gasps) It feels so old and um, we have a middle schooler and then we have three kids in elementary school. So Johanna is in fifth grade, Natana's in third grade and Talia is in first grade. And then we have our three-year-old who just started Head Start. Avia, is, our youngest, is half is half day. So when Tyler and I got together to talk seriously about spirituality, it took him a while to find headphones, and he ended up with cat ears. All right. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. My daughters, they have kitty ears, but they will work. They will totally work. So as you hear Tyler's story, I really want you to picture him wearing pink cat ears. We've all had a tough couple of years, and people are certainly in a season of making big life changes, discovering and selecting what's most important to us. But Tyler got a kick in the teeth. Remember, he was in residence life when COVID hit. Schools were closing and opening and closing again. There were major dorm outbreaks, and the professionals in charge had to house and quarantine sick kids who make bad choices. It was a whole mess. So Tyler is no longer in res life, and he's had to take some time to recover. Job is, I'm not really allowed to talk about it. I've got a non-disclosure agreement, and I'm not allowed to say a whole lot other than the fact that not working there was good for me. I have been stay-at-home dad for the last year while my wife started working and she works for ARC. So she does coaching and helping her clients get jobs. 
So oh she is gosh. loving it, you know, so it's been good. That's a huge shift, Tyler. Like, how did you guys make that decision? Well, I mean, it's kind of made for us. So like when, when my job ended a year ago, you know, obviously working in higher ed, we have to go necessarily where the jobs are there. You know, there's only one college in town. And so if I'm not working at that college, either we have to move or I have to find a different job. There aren't a lot of options for me. And so the best thought was for Carrie to find a job and she found one really quickly, fortunately. Yeah. I'm going to have to switch careers if okay. we're going to stay in town. So, okay. which we want to do, we want to, we don't want to move the kids because they just moved 3000 miles away three years ago. <sighs> yeah. So. That's rough. Yeah. It, it, I, it's, it is, and it isn't, it's rough, but Abby, it's been the best our family has done, it's been nothing but positive for our family over the last year. And as we talk about faith, like my, my faith has grown, my relationship with God has grown. And so for me, it's been, it's been fantastic. You know, again, other, other than the financial aspect of it, it's, you know, pretty decent. I'm sure it was really nice being home with your kiddos though. It, It was nice. And it was a great learning experience. I think for me, I never really owned the, the, the identity as a father. I mean, I was a dad, but Carrie was taking care of all of the kids stuff. I was at work all day. And so for me to be home and be in that role was eye opening in a lot of ways. And, you know, learning some of my skills of what I'm good at and some of what I'm not good at, you know, as a dad and, and having to learn that has been really, it, it's, it's deepened my understanding of my purpose. You know, a lot of times for me, it's it's, that's over the last year is figuring out what is my purpose. I wasn't put on this earth to be a director of res life. I was put on this earth to be a dad and and a husband. And I was choosing one over the other. And so for me, living out my purpose is, is a much better way of living instead of the surviving. I think I was doing of trying to be a good person and work like yeah. that's where my identity was coming from and so it's been really good in terms of my faith so yeah. so that's what's up with tyler now he's looking for a new career and outside of that piece feeling pretty clear on his identity and purpose but those lessons don't come easy we have to start at the beginning we know many folks have wounds from their faith community of origin and tyler is no different but some stories come full circle. If you rewind the job stress, all the kids and marriage, you'll find little Tyler with big questions. Here we go. Tyler as a kid, I grew up in a Jewish home. Mom and dad were Jewish. You know, I I was forced to go to Hebrew school. I didn't like it at all. It wasn't my thing. It was, there was a lot of frustration there. It was very fake. I felt like we would go to synagogue and people cared more about what other people were wearing than thinking about God or thinking about things. And I had a lot of questions because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a thinker and I didn't get a lot of good answers, you know? And so I think for me growing up as a kid, you know, as you're asking questions and not getting answers, you start to question, 
what are people hiding or what are people not telling me? I do was, you remember any of the questions you had that you like didn't feel satisfied with the answers you were getting? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest question for me growing up was why were we praying in Hebrew when nobody understood what it is we were praying? So like we were taught like in Hebrew school, they taught you some of the language growing up. And I grew up in a conservative synagogue. And it's important because within Judaism, there is a lot of diversity within Judaism. And so I grew up in a conservative synagogue where they taught us a little bit of the language, but what they really taught us was how to read it. So I was good at reading Hebrew. I could read the words on the page. I didn't know what they meant. And the English was on the other side. So I could read what it is the prayers were, but your brain can't do both of those at the same time necessarily. I mean, you can train your brain to do it with repetition, but, and so we were praying in Hebrew, but nobody knew what we were actually saying. We were just saying these words. And in my mind, it was gobbledygook. And I'm like, why would this matter to somebody if there was a God, you know? And I remember that was one of my big questions and really, I just, I didn't, other than it was tradition or this is the way our ancestors did it, which as a kid, I mean, ancestors did a lot of things I wouldn't want to do, you know, (laughs) yeah, they had, they had, you know, they had polygamy. They had in America, there was slavery. Like just because our ancestors did it, isn't a reason for me to continue doing it. Yeah. I wanted to know why. And it just, it felt hollow in a lot of ways growing up. Yeah. And, and really, when my father passed away at 15, it freed me up a little bit to just walk away. I remember at his funeral, all these people just praying in Hebrew and me going, this is just ridiculous. Like, no one knows what they're saying right now. This is not it. And so I walked away and, and really became an atheist for a really long time and antagonistic to a lot of things spiritual. That was between the ages of 15 till about 20, for about 10 years. And in the middle of all of that, I started creating my own belief system about what I saw the universe being. And, you know, even at one point, uh, I'm embarrassed to admit that I even wrote my own Bible. I mm-hmm. wrote my own kind of like, this is Tyler's theory of life. I don't know that I think I have it anymore, but um, I it was really on wish computer. you did. I, and I, I might, but I probably don't. Um, Cause I remember it was a, I wrote it on like a, one of those original IMAX, which was like the little, the little one from 1992 or three. Like this was like really old school. And I, what I do remember is thinking the universe was a rubber band and it was expanding and contracting constantly. And so the Big Bang wasn't the beginning. It was just the beginning of this cycle and that the universe was going to expand and eventually it would get to as far it was going to be. And then it would start collapsing in on itself. And it was just, it was just a cycle. And that's all it really is. And, and so just that was kind of where I was at. Hebrew school led to unanswered questions which led to a pretty strong decade of atheism. But Tyler still had questions. He was still seeking meaning, even going so far as creating his own philosophy of the universe. 
He was attending UC Santa Barbara, and this belief system was working. But one simple question remained. What in this life would make him happy? As I got older, you know, I reached kind of a low point in my life where I had contemplated suicide, you know, and that was probably at the lowest point of my life. I didn't know what the purpose of living was. What led to that was the idea that a woman was going to make me happy. Like that's what I was looking for. And so I had started dating this woman and basically she dumped me out of the blue. She went home for the summer from college about a week before I was supposed to visit her. She said, Hey, you don't want to come. I'm like, what are you talking about? I've been looking about this all summer. You know, you don't want to come. I've met somebody else. I'm dropping out of UCSB. I'm staying in Oklahoma and I've met somebody else and we're not together anymore. And it was just, to me, it was devastating because that was my whole goal in life. And it was like shattered. Yeah. Um, And so it was suicidal at that point. And that really started a a journey for me of trying to figure out what it was going to take to make me happy. That began a, a, a journey in my 20s, really, to figure that out. And, and, and came back around a little bit in Las Vegas where I had won like 1500 bucks the blackjack table and just feeling very empty. Like, like I'm supposed to feel happy right now, but I'm not, you know? And so for me sitting there, I was like, what, what is it going to take? And that brought me to Deepak Chopra, who wrote this book, The Path to Love. And that book, in many ways, really helped me start on this journey to discover what is love. Because I think at the end of the day, that's what I wanted. I knew I wanted a family I loved, in a place I loved, in a job I loved. Mm -hmm. And if I could have those three things, I'd be happy problem is I didn't really know what love was. But Deepak wrote Chopra's book basically said, you can't, you can't love unless you believe in a creator. Like there, there's no way love exists without some sort of creator. Now, you know, and, and for me, that was kind of problematic because I did not believe in a creator and a God or anything like that. And I remember taking this like self-test in the book. And you're supposed to check, well, if you got this many right, this, this many right. And it said, if you got this many right, you're lying to yourself. And you need to retake this quiz and be more honest. And I looked at the answer and I was like, I cursed. I was like, I, I, I was like, how, how did this book? Because it was true. It was really true. I was, I was answering it the way I wanted things to be, not the way things really were. And so for me, that really cut to the heart of, of who I was. Oh, what in that moment did you feel like you were lying to yourself about? Just about like what was important to me, where I found meaning. You know, I don't remember fully, but it was like my views on what love is, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and the times I've loved and, you know, what I thought about it. And, and it, was, it was just, I was lying to myself. I just wasn't being very honest with me. Got it. Um, and so that was eye opening. 
Deepak Chopra's book, The Path to Love, says, To realize I am love is not reserved only for those who marry. It is a universal realization cherished in every spiritual tradition. Or to put it most simply, all relationships are ultimately a relationship with God. End quote. So these teachings at this specific point in his life opened him up to listening. So then I started listening to friends talk about their faith. And as I was listening, and a lot of them were Christians, a lot of them were saying things about God that I thought about love. The idea that love could heal wounds, love was miraculous. I really believe that about love and I didn't believe it about God until one night I was walking and I said to myself, what if I just define God as love? Like, what if, what if I'm, it's just a semantical issue at that point that it's really love and God are synonymous and love is really the key. And I'll remember, and I did a lot of running at the time and I was living in Chico. I ran that night and felt a presence running next to me. Um, and the presence, I, I could I could hear it. It wasn't like visual, like you and I looking at each other, it, but it was there and it was real to me at least. I kind of thought I was going crazy at the time, but I wasn't. And I just, I just heard this voice say, aren't you tired of Tyler? Aren't you tired of doing this by yourself? And I was like, yeah, I'm tired of being alone. I'm tired of doing this all on my own. And I just heard this voice saying, I want to help you. If you give me your burdens, if you give me your problems, I'll carry them for you. I went to the tallest point that I could find, which is Whitney Hall at Chico State. I went up on the roof and I said, okay, God, you've got my attention. I can hear you now. What is it you want from me? And just through a series of events that reinforced that, that I could only describe as epiphanies, burning bush moments. You know, people might say the, the, the Paul on the, on the road moments. There were, there were multiple moments like that that brought me to the place where I could actively believe that God was God, that he loved me, that he wanted a relationship with me. At the time, I think I connected a lot to Christianity. Looking back, I think that was the inroad for me to get connected with God. I think my journey within Christianity and going to church and talking to Christians is once again, I had a lot of questions and wasn't getting a lot of answers. And this was both in the evangelical Christian, Christian movement. This was in the Catholic movement, because as I also loved history and was studying history, Nobody could answer the question for me of how, when you read the New Testament, that early Christianity was a sect of Judaism. And it is clear early Christianity was a sect of Judaism. What happened between it being a sect of Judaism and what Christianity is today? Why? why? Like, why like, that didn't make a lot of sense to me. And, and really, nobody could answer that. 
you know, and started, you know, and, and people were interpreting passages that I was reading and going, that's not what that passage says in your own Bible. Paul writes all scriptures, God breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. What scripture was Paul writing about? Because the New Testament hadn't been written at that point. And Christians didn't want to answer that for me. And I'm like, he was talking about the Torah. And if the Torah was useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, you can't just blow it off and say, well, Jesus came and it's no longer valid. Because that's not what Paul writes. It's not even what Jesus said in your own Bible, because Jesus said, I didn't come to change the law. And whoever follows the law is going to be considered greatest in the kingdom of heaven. But Christians weren't able to engage with me on that. So Tyler has had a sequence of profound moments that moved him out of that atheist category. He's heard some things within Christianity that open up his idea of who God might be. But now he's a Jewish man bringing his knowledge of the Torah and his interest in history into a culture that I can say is not particularly interested in exploring these things. Here are some other issues he tried to navigate in that space. And then the problem of Christian holidays came up. So being Jewish, I'm reading about all of these holy days written about in the Bible. And I'm asking, why don't we celebrate these holy days? I mean, God said for all generations, you're supposed to celebrate the Feast of Trumpets, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Like these are written about in the Old Testament. Where did Jesus say, hey, you don't have to do that anymore. We're changing the rules. So now we're going to celebrate Christmas and Easter, which have their roots in paganism. And again, no great answers. And I talked to a lot of Christian and read a lot of Christian apologetics because I genuinely was trying to think, okay, this is okay. This is, this is, there's gotta be an answer here. Why is it we pick and choose which of the law, the laws Christians live by and which we're going to ignore? How do we get to the Sabbath which in the Torah and the Ten Commandments, which is very important for, for Christianity, one of the commandments is keep the Sabbath holy. And the Sabbath is the seventh day of the week, which is Saturday, Friday night to Saturday night. How did y'all get to Sunday? How did y'all do that? Well, that's the Lord's day. Okay. I said, so I don't understand why Christians don't celebrate the Sabbath. Now, they're Seventh-day Adventists, certainly that would do that. And people were wearing the what would Jesus do bracelets, right? This was, this was around that same time, the yeah. WWJD. And I, and I said, and I would say, what would Jesus do when somebody put a plate of ham in front of him? And like, well, that's not what what would Jesus do means. I'm like, wait a minute, you, you can't have it both ways. Jesus would never have eaten ham. Well, Peter's dream says we can't. Like, well, wait a minute. Let's read Peter's dream. Peter interpreted his his own dream, and he never once mentioned food, that it was food. He said, this is about people, that the people who believe they were unclean are now clean. So it wasn't about food. It was about people. You've made it about food. So then I started studying Christian history and learned about Constantine and the Council of Nicaea. And really, it was as if my eyes were opened. It was like, 
Okay. Really, what we're talking about is the church is built on a foundation of anti-Semitism because Constantine brought all of the believers at the time together, except for the believers who were Jewish. Because Constantine brought the Council of Nicaea together and said, if you were Jewish, you were not welcome at this council. So there was a group of believers that were completely left out because Constantine didn't want the church to be Jewish because for him, it was a matter of control. And so the Council of Nicaea created these Nicaean creeds that precluded Jews from practicing Christianity at that point. And that is the earliest birth of the church, the way we currently understand it. You know, that bore the, the rift between Catholics and the Orthodox Church, which birthed the rift between Protestants and Catholics, which birthed the evangelical movement, you know. And so all of that comes from this foundation that, again, to me, takes away from what is written about even in the New Testament. And so for me, that was prob uh, really problematic, you know, and as I would talk to Christians, they would get very defensive and very much like, no, like, we're not going to talk about this. And I, and, and what really sealed the deal is there was a pastor at the church that we were a part of at the time, because I, we were talking about the holidays. And I said, he said to me, Tyler, you're right. We shouldn't be celebrating Christmas and Easter. We should be celebrating the Jewish holidays. However, if I were to put that out there, I wouldn't have a church because everybody in my church would get up and leave. And at that point, I'm like, it's, it's the same thing. The church is just a business and it's all about bringing money in and sustaining people's cognitive congruence because at the end of the day, it's not about the truth. You can't sit here on Sunday morning and preach the truth will set you free. And then behind the scenes, tell me, I know the truth, but I can't share it because people will leave. Yeah. So for me, that really pushed me away from Christianity. And so for a long time, I basically was kind of, it's just me and God. And I would even say it was me and God, you know, because I think for me, I, I just, it was me. I was being kind of self-centered and selfish I, you know, I believed in God, so to speak. I believed, like my belief in faith necessarily didn't change. So it's him and God, which made sense because again, he was frustrated by the lack of answers, but he also said it was selfish. And I think part of that is that a spirituality that doesn't involve any other human beings can feel hollow. If as Chopra says, all relationships are ultimately a relationship with God, well, you're missing out on some God in that one-on-one -on -one equation. When I met Tyler in Fresno, he was dabbling in Messianic Judaism, but that was short-lived. We were really not involved in a whole lot in Fresno. There, there was Messianic Judaism that kind of blended Judaism and Christianity. But once again, it was a similar problem. It was founded on Christian principles, and it was really a church that wanted to be Jewish instead of really owning Judaism, mm. you know, until we got to Santa Barbara and started getting connected with Chabad, which is a Jew. It, it's as close to even... I, I, I'm not going to say this because I think it will be too offensive to a lot of people. <laughs> Chabad very much is evangelical in the in the in the sense that 
the mission of Chabad is to help Jews be, be Jews. It's not about being more Jewish or less Jewish because the idea is there is no levels of Judaism. You're Jewish. You're not a better Jew. You're not a worse Jew. You're just Jewish. Everybody's Jewish. There's no, there's no levels. And growing up in the conservative synagogue, Orthodox Judaism was a big red flag because the belief is Orthodox Jews judged all of us other Jews because we weren't doing the Orthodox things and we weren't practicing Judaism. We weren't practicing Judaism correctly. And so for me, you know, I met, uh, there was a Chabad rabbi on campus at UC Santa Barbara and his name was Gershon Klein and he was very different and very happy, very bubbly. And we just started talking. He's like, well, what makes you happy, Tyler? And we'd have conversations. And that got me closer and more connected to being Jewish. Mm. Now, there were a lot of wounds. Obviously, there was a lot of things growing up as a kid that I had problems with Judaism. And I will always remember that one of the pivotal moments was we went to a Chabad service And we parked in the Chabad parking lot and we were the only ones parked in the parking lot. Everybody else parked out on the street. And I couldn't understand that. And I asked somebody, the the wife of the rabbi, I said, are we not supposed to park in the parking lot? Are we supposed to park on the street? And her response was life-changing. And she said, at Chabad, we don't tell people what to do, what they should or they shouldn't do. There aren't rules like that. That's not why we're here. She said, there are some people who park on the street because they want the blessing and the mitzvah of walking to synagogue, you know, and so they'll park on the street and walk to synagogue, but you are welcome to park in our parking lot. Like, that's not, that's not a rule we have. And I was like, huh, there's freedom there. Like, it's not about what you're supposed to do and not supposed to do. It was about people wanting to connect with God. And I had a big problem because one of the things in Chabad is this reverence for the Rebbe. And it's Rebbe Menachem Schneerson is the the Rebbe. And it was funny because I would listen to people talk about the Rebbe. And it was like listening to Christians talk about Jesus in a lot of ways. The difference being is that no one would ever say that the Rebbe was God that Christians would say, well, Jesus was God. But the way they talked about Schneerson, and as I started to read some of Schneerson's writings, are very much in line with a lot of the writings of what people attributed to Jesus. And it was really interesting, because I'm reading these very Jewish texts going, whoa, my friends read this, similar things, in Christianity. And it was all about a relationship with God. It was all about a journey and a process and that God cares about the process. It's not about necessarily the end result. The other mind shift for me, you know, being connected with Chabad was the idea that what happens to us is always for our good, even if we can't see it. So, you know, in Christianity, there was a thought of like things happen for a reason in Chabad. And, and it's a sect of Judaism says things happen for our good, not just a metaphorical good, a literal good. 
you know, that anything that happens to us, it's because God, it happens because of that. And if you think about it, for me, the idea that God exists outside of time, he is with Moses on the Mount as he is sitting here with you and I, as he is sitting with our children a hundred years from now. To him, that's all happening simultaneously because he's outside of time. And so the idea of that and the idea that I have free will to make decisions and he also knows what those decisions are going to be before I even know them. And he's working things out to move me in the right direction brings a lot of comfort, you know? And that is where for me, I've really begun to find my footing, I would say, in my faith. Tyler got pretty grounded in the Chabad community in Santa Barbara. Then they uprooted their family and moved from California to New York. Then, as you already know, his job there came to an abrupt end in the midst of a global pandemic, which can be a real faith shaker. Being out of a job and struggling with being a dad and struggling, you know, being married, it's like nothing's working. I was distraught. So I called Gershon, who I thought was in California, and said, hey, can we just, do you have an hour to talk? And he, his response is like, well, you're never going to believe this. I'm in New York. And I was sitting there going, it's one of the, God knows what we need and when we need it. I, I met him in Brooklyn, New York, and we went to the Ohel. And the Ohel is a hallowed ground for Chabad Judaism because it's where the Rebbe is buried, Schneerson. Because he's a content, like he was, he died in, I think, the 70s. So he's relatively new. And the thing about the Rebbe was there, there have been seven Rebbe. So every generation has a Rebbe. But he was the last because the, the, the change for him is what he said is, I've done my part to bring Mashiach. And that's the idea is that there is going to be a Messiah. The Messiah has not come. And what Rabbi said is all of you now are responsible to bring light into the world, to live out your faith and, and deepen Torah for others and deepen Torah understanding for others. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so Rabbi Gershon took me to the Ohel and one of the ideas is you write a prayer to the Rebbe. And it's not like you're writing it to the Rebbe. I, it's probably a lot like Catholics, you know, praying to Mary a little bit. But the idea is you write out on a piece of paper, a prayer to the spirit of the Rebbe. Because the idea in Judaism is, and especially in Orthodox Judaism, is that the, the soul is God in you, that, that we have a neshama, and that is God has put himself in us. And so when we die, that soul returns. So never your soul never really dies. Your body is just a vessel, you know, and the neshama is here in your body for a purpose on this earth. And so the neshama is a part of God. And so the soul, the neshama of the Rebbe is with Hashem. Okay. So we write down kind of, your prayer. And I wrote down five things I wanted, you know, a job I loved, a you know, I wanted restoration with my wife. I wanted, you know, to be a dad. I wanted to 
do, you know, I wanted to be financially secure because, you know, losing a job, there's a lot of financial fear. Like, are we going to be able to make mortgage payments? How am I going to put food on the table? My daughter has epilepsy. How are we going to pay for epilepsy meds? You know, I had a heart attack. How am I going to continue? My, you know, and so all of these things and I, you write it and you go and you rip it up and you throw it in top of his grave. And we did that. He sent that prayer, and then he also put his commitments into action. And I started making some commitments to connect with God, you know, and one of them is the Jewish tradition of wrapping tefillin. And that's kind of the, the, one of the holier prayers of Judaism is the Shema, hero Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And it talks about put it writing these, you know, teach them to your children, write them as a sign upon your hand, put them as a reminder between your eyes. And so one of the commitments I made was wrapping to fill in on a daily basis. So I started every morning doing that and started every morning davening, which is a, is, is, and, and, and Judaism, the idea is what prayer is, is, is not asking it's connecting. It's like a connecting point. And then I started reading the Torah. So I started doing those three things. I also started meditating and learning how to meditate. So I got the 10% Happier app. Um, somebody gifted that to me and started learning to meditate, be mindful. I was diagnosed with agitated depression. So I started getting some medication there and that was helping. So all of these things were deepening my roots and my understanding and my faith. Have you been doing therapy too? Yes, that's part of it. Yeah, yeah, that, that is another piece of it. That's where I've got diagnosed. So it's kind of more of a of a holistic approach. So I'm not just relying on my faith and religion or spirituality. And and my rabbi and the rabbi that here at Chabad is like, yeah, he's like, God gave us a brain to use. He gave us doctors. He gave us these things. We'd be foolish not to use them. You know. You know, for me, what worked for a while was cognitive CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. So I was doing that for a while and that was good, but that only got me to a certain point. Now I'm doing a lot of brain therapy. So we're, we're, you know, my therapist is trained to do brain spotting, which is kind of, kind of having your brain activate and learning about uh, polyvagal theory. I don't know if you're familiar with polyvagal theory. It's, it's how your brain is either in a sympathetic state, which is where it's kind of like on guard and it's like heightened state of alert. So even like small things, right? Like my kid coming and saying, you know, she needs her diaper changed. I could be like, I'm on high alert. That's danger for me Mm -hmm. because of past trauma. Mm -hmm. And then there is the ventral state, which is kind of the more like we're having a party, things are cool, we're relating to one another, brain is comfortable. And then there's the dorsal state, which is like the curling up in the fetal position and wanting to go to bed, like Mm -hmm. going to sleep. And so learning about how my brain responds to different stimuluses and when I get into trouble and make bad decisions is generally when I'm in that sympathetic state. When you're in the dorsal state, crawling into bed and going to sleep, 
you wake up in the morning and your brain's reset and you're good to go. But it's really that sympathetic state where things really become a problem. Mm -hmm. And so learning about how my brain works has been hugely helpful in conjunction and, and integrated with my faith and my soul. And I started, so I started getting some problems in my meditation practice because of some of the past trauma and then started doing some reading on trauma and meditation. I found some really good resources on dealing with childhood trauma and meditating because traditional meditation can trigger trauma for a lot of people, which I didn't know going into the practice Yeah, um, that a lot of people who suffered childhood trauma or other traumas, the breathing can really trigger anxiety and it can trigger a lot of things in your brain because you're trying to push past cognitive dissociative blocks that your brain has built mm. and your brain will fight back on that if you don't understand that's what's going on. So, I, mm. but that's been helpful for me and my newest landscape is learning to meditate with trauma and being able to engage that in a way that's healing. He's had a lot of learning and growth over the past couple of years and established practices that work for him to maintain his mental health and continue learning. Here's a practice he's actually expanded. The thing for this year, so we just finished the Torah cycle where you start on Simchat Torah reading Genesis and you read all the way through the end of the book and then you kind of start over. So I did that last year and this year I felt compelled to start sharing it on Facebook. Because one of my purposes is, I believe I'm put on the earth to deepen my own understanding of Torah and deepen others' understanding of the Torah. And so I've been sharing that on Facebook on a daily basis of like, here's the portion I read today and here's my thoughts. What are your thoughts? And trying to engage on that. And so I'm doing that. So I think for me, that's kind of brought me to this place feeling very secure and safe, which is a change because my brain has been in a constant state of hypervigilance. Yeah. And so I think for me, it's learning that my, my brain is okay. I asked Tyler if prayer was also part of his practice. He said, yes, but I needed some details because apparently we all pray differently. He brought up a term we talked about a lot in the Not the Same series, liturgy. And like my understanding based on my evangelical background is I just like blah, blah, blah to God and there's no like structure to it. Right. So what is it like for you? You know, and that's interesting because within Chabad, Rabbi Gershon would, one of the first things when I went to a service with him is he's like, look, the Rebbe talked about praying in a language you can understand. We say the prayers in Hebrew because that is the language that we were given as Jews. But if you don't understand Hebrew, you pray in English, pray in a language that's meaningful for you, because the point isn't doing it right. The point is connecting with God. And so there is liturgy. And as an, an evangelical church, liturgy is like worse than death. Like <laughs> liturgy is just bad. We don't do liturgy, which is a lie because it's just different kind of liturgy. The service is the same every week it's just and it's it's liturgy but it's not this liturgy yeah so there is a liturgical component 
to the prayer. And at the same time, there's a part of the liturgy that allows for that open dialogue. So there is what's called the Amida, which is the standing silent prayer. And there are words that you can pray. But at any point, the, the idea is you can stop and just talk to God about what you need. That's a very Jewish concept, which was surprising for me because I thought that was evangelical Christians came up with that. No, Jews have been doing that for a long period of time. There are other points where, um, you know, the liturgy says, quotes a, Bible, a verse in the Torah and says, you know, open your heart to me and I will give you whatever the desires of your heart is. And so there's this idea at that moment, just talk to God about what are the desires of your heart? So it's, it is a hybrid. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I've been doing this for over a year now. I have started to bring Hebrew into it. So going back to what I said is I couldn't read Hebrew and read English at the same time. I now on certain prayers have memorized the Hebrew so that as I'm saying the Hebrew words, my eyes are focused on the English words. So I'm able to say it in Hebrew, but read the English at the exact same time and learning some of this Hebrew and what some of these words mean. And I will reiterate. And if I don't, what I'll do is I'll say, I'll, I'll add time to my prayer and I'll say it twice. I'll read it in English and then maybe say the last line in Hebrew to repeat it just because I want, because I do recognize that Hebrew is an important language when it comes to God, because it's the, it's the language that he gave our ancestors, mm -hmm. you know? And so for me, I, I would love to be fluent in Hebrew. There's a passion for that as an almost 50 year old man. It's there's, there's some barriers and roadblocks to that, but in my prayer time, it's following a structure to keep me on track and talking to God when I need to talk to God. And I found that very enriching and very enlightening and very helpful, you know? And that's the nice thing of combining that with meditation because it allows me to hear, right? Because when I'm meditating and focusing on my breath, there are things that come up and I'm like, okay, that connects with what I was asking for. Hey, there's an answer there. And, and journaling it all and putting it down has been really helpful in my again, connecting time. Mm -hmm. And the Jewish liturgy is generally built around, you start with recognizing your place in the world, giving praise to God, leading up to saying there's one God, going into a silent prayer, reading the Torah, saying thank you, reinforcing that he is the only God, and then doing things there there's what the, the prayers normally end with the six remembrances and it's like remember what your god did for you on the way out of egypt remember you know what happened to miriam in the desert remember god's provision remember the shabbos day and keep it holy you know it's so like there's these remembrances and so i'm doing them every day and i and, and remembering and so it's it's been good and i think so that's kind of my my prayers A whole bunch of different Jewish faith communities. And of course, we're not exploring all of them, but I asked Tyler to share with us the communities that his family participates in. So we're actually a part of two different synagogues and we're cool with that. So my wife is actually on the board of directors at the local conservative synagogue. What, what does conservative mean in that context? 
conservative Judaism has taken Orthodox Judaism and said, we need to adapt to the world around us. So like, so Chabad, women aren't included in the numbers for a minion. So in order to have a, 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 to say certain prayers, you need 10 people to say certain prayers. In Chabad, they have to be Jewish men who have Jewish mothers. At the conservative synagogue, 10 adults will do with Jewish mothers or fathers. Chabad women can't be rabbis because that's not their role. That's not what their purpose was on the earth. In conservatives, like our rabbi at our conservative synagogue is a lesbian Jew. And so the conservative movement is very much trying to find the balance of tradition and modernity. Mm -hmm. There is also reform Judaism, which would move in the complete direction of modernity. Like reform Judaism would go even further. Like there are conservatives who would probably still keep kosher. They would, you know, they wouldn't mix meat and milk. They wouldn't eat a ham sandwich. Reform Jews probably would because they're like, oh, it's Judaism isn't as much about, you know, what I do. It's just my culture and we'll celebrate the holidays. And, and there's no judgment on that because, again, a Reformed Jew is just as much a Jew as an Orthodox Jew. It's not like Orthodox Jews are better Jews than Reformed Jews because that's not how Hashem, God, sees them. So as a family, we talk about we are too Orthodox for conservative Judaism and we are not Orthodox enough for Orthodox Judaism. Yeah. So we kind of fall right in the middle. One of the running jokes with some of the students who've come out of Chabad who knows us, they call us accidentally Hasidic because we've done a lot of things that are in line with Orthodox Judaism. Carrie and I didn't kiss until our wedding night. That is the, the, that standard of purity is very much in Orthodox Judaism. We have a very large family. And Rabbi Gershon, when I first met him, he, he was curious. Why do you have so many kids? Because that's not something many people traditionally do. So there's a lot of things that make us accidentally Hasidic. And I think it's just a matter of, I think spiritually, there's more of a connection at Chabad. I think Chabad's catering to college students more. And so we're not quite fitting in culturally with the college students mm. as much as at the conservative synagogue, which is designed more for parents and older generation folks and our kids. Cause like there's a Hebrew school there. So our kids are going to Hebrew school. I taught Hebrew school three weeks ago. We rotate, we all rotate around. So we're plugged into both. I think my heart is a Jew is a Jew. We want to be connected to all of the Jews in Oneonta. We don't necessarily put a wall up between those two groups. Mm -hmm. They, there are probably people at the conservative synagogues who would, but like, so last night we had a special service because somebody at Chabad, he's older, his mom is celebrating a yard site. So in, in Judaism, every year on the anniversary of a parent's death, you say some special prayers to honor your parents it's the mourner's cottage. So there's a mourner's prayer that you say every year and you are required to have this minion, this 10 people to come to say the prayer. And so last night there were people from the conservative synagogue who came over to count for the minion. So this gentleman could say the mourner's cottage for his mother. And so there is that connecting point. 
so yeah so i think there, there's there's that connection so we fit in both and we don't fit in either As you have probably gathered, Tyler is into Judaism now. It's provided some clarity, and the practices are serving he and his family well. That being established, is there anything he would hope to change? About in, what? In any or there's a, we could talk about systemic change. <laughs> you give me the system, and okay, I'll talk me, about Right, so let me be specific. In Judaism, and or just the communities you're a part of. I would say, so yes, I think, and I want to be careful here because <laughs> the system things are system things. They're not individual things, meaning that there are human beings that have been brought up in these systems who are very connected to these systems. And so the, 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 the changes would be again back to the systems. I think within Judaism there are some diversity issues. I think Judaism tends to skew very white in a lot of ways. Now, Rabbi Meir at the Chabad would say you can't call a Jew white because we're Jewish, and that is an ethnicity, and it's not white. You know, we come from a bloodline that is in the Middle East. We're, you know, we're, we're, we're more, we're not white, even though we present as white and there's a lot of privilege in that, you know? So I think systemically, I wish within Judaism, there was more empathy and compassion, especially in America for the experiences of other marginalized communities. There's a lot of bootstrapping among Jews and Rabbi and I have had good conversations about this. And I explained to him, I said, you, you can't compare because they're app because he's like, well, look at what we've done as Jews. Like we, you know, we, we came here with nothing and we built ourselves up. And I said, yes, but that's very different than the experiences of somebody who was brought here against their will. And for generations was a so I, some of those things. I, there, there's some systemic things that I think are really problematic. Yeah. Orthodox Jews tend to skew very conservative. So one of the things about Rabbi Mayer is his father was an Orthodox rabbi that was pardoned by Donald Trump. So he's a, he's kind of a famous rabbi. And when we moved here, the Gershon said, well, you know who the rabbi is in Oneonta. His dad is this guy who's been in prison for 15 years and Donald Trump pardoned him and is a big deal in the Jewish community. And so the, the, the Orthodox Jews tend to skew very conservative, very pro-Trump. And I think some of that is systemic that I would love to see differently. I think in conservative Judaism, there's still that sense. It's not as bad, but I think it's still there. So I think for me, if I could change that, it would be focusing more on that compassion instead of focusing on being right. Because I think as Jews, we tend to want to be right Instead of now, Rabbi would disagree with me, and he would say, "Well, we're very compassionate," and and in, he's very—it's very true. But I just think there's a couple things that, for me, were, would would be there's still that organized piece of it that's fully human. Yes, and, and I think you're always going to get that. That Rabbi was actually not pardoned by Donald Trump. 
but his sentence was commuted by 19 years. What has been most impactful for Tyler is that within Judaism, he found a community where he can finally ask critical questions and have dialogue without hurt feelings and defensiveness. So after a spiritual journey with so many turns, what does Tyler believe 100%? I believe 100% there is a creator. None of this is random or an accident. The, the, the system is, there's no way an explosion could happen and a computer just randomly appears. Our bodies are so much more intricate than a computer. This is not, there has to be a creator. I 100% believe there's a creator. I 100% believe that creator wants to be in a relationship with us. I 100% believe that God has chosen to limit himself by putting a piece of himself in every one of us. And so when we're looking at others, we're seeing the very nature of God in them. And I believe that everyone has that spark in them regardless of what they've done. And I believe that the past and the future aren't real. I believe the only reality is this moment, because if you think about it, the past is just our brain in this moment, processing information in this moment. Because the past is, again, it doesn't exist. It only thing exists is now in this moment, our brains thinking about the past, our brain strategizing about the future, this, the next 60 seconds are really the only thing we have control over. So if we made a mistake a minute ago, we can get stuck in that. But that was designed, as Rabbi Mayer would say, the, the design of that, God allowed that to happen so that we could live the next 60 seconds and make the choices we're going to make because that's what we have control over. That's what we have the ability. That's what's real. My image of the past is purely my brain's processing of the events of the past. And my brain is not objective when it comes to processing those events. Mm -hmm. And me processing my time at Fresno State is going to look very different than your brain processing your time at Fresno State. Mm -hmm. Neither, none of that is real anymore. Our time at Fresno State isn't real. What's real is this moment between us here and now and our brains connecting with each other because that's what's real now. The other thing I will say, I believe, I believe that God put me on this earth to be Carrie's husband. I believe God put me on this earth to be the father of six beautiful children um, who will grow up to be hopefully beautiful women and change the world and make it a better place. And I believe that things work for our good. Those are the things I believe 100%. I mean, that was six things, I think. That, that was like a lot yeah. of things. It's good. There's some confidence there. There's yeah, a lot of things I don't know. There's a lot of things I don't know, but. <laughs> Toward the end of my conversation with Tyler, I asked him if anything he said would be potentially offensive to an audience. I don't mind sharing things on this show that can ruffle feathers because I think it's important for all of us to share our stories honestly and to hear others, even if they make us uncomfortable. That being said, I'm not part of the Jewish community, so I at least prefer to know in advance who I might be upsetting. He didn't think so. 
but he said that what he mentioned about evangelical practices being cultural appropriation of Judaism could be offensive to Christians. Then he went on to say a lot of other offensive things that I found very interesting. You, you clearly have an idea of what cultural appropriation is. How is that any different than what Constantine did with all of these Jewish traditions and taken them and made them Christian? Constantine colonized Judaism for his benefit and paganism. When you put that Christmas tree up, that, that is culturally appropriated from paganism, but that it's okay somehow because that's what God wanted. So that will be very controversial for people because that was a big influential for Carrie. And I was a big moment because we at one point put up Christmas trees and a pagan came into our house one time and said, it's nice to see one of my, religious artifacts in your home. And I was like, dang, I hadn't even considered that, you know, and they did it to get a rise and it did. And it's like, it caused me to chew on that. Like, what is the origin of the Christmas tree? Why am I putting this up? You know, and the story, even the story of Jesus born in a manger. Um, Hello, the Jewish holiday of Sukkot, which builds temporary tabernacles that are designed for things just like this, that Jesus probably wasn't born on December 25th because that was what they wanted to take away from the pagans for Saturnalia. He was likely born around Sukkot if he was Jewish and would have been born probably more in the fall than he would have been in the winter. So again, cultural appropriation, you kind of took that. For folks who are followers of Jesus, that is Mm -hmm. their definition. I want to follow and be like Jesus as much as I can. That's my value system. Where's the line? Like, what are the okay thing? Like knowing that Jesus was a Jewish man, like what are the things that are okay versus appropriating? I I think it has to start with the acknowledgement that Jesus was a Jewish man. And I think the next question you have to ask yourself is, did Jesus come to start a new religion? Because if he came to start a new religion, then you have to call him kind of a liar because a lot of what he wrote about wasn't about starting a new religion. But if he didn't come to start a new religion, then what has been created from this isn't what his goal was. And you have to acknowledge that. And so I think I, I, I can't give people answers. I can give them questions. Yeah. You know, do you believe Jesus came to start a new religion? Because the earliest, if you read it in the Bible, it says, was a sect of Judaism. So what happened between the time it was a sect of Judaism to today where you couldn't recognize it as even being Jewish? It has Jewish things, but they've all been removed from Judaism. And so I think those would be the questions. To me, I can't tell you where the line is. That's, that's between you and God, right? Like that's a, that's a journey that people have to go on. I think the just question you have to ask yourself is who is Jesus, you know, and Christians are saying, well, he was God. I'm like, well, that kind of is an interpretation because a lot of that stemmed from the council of Nicaea. A lot of that was created by Constantine and was designed so that the Jews couldn't be a part of it. The Jewish believers of Jesus at the time couldn't be a part of that because you made Jesus God. That was, that was Constantine. That wasn't the Trinity, Constantine. That's all Constantine and the Council of Nicaea, which was designed to keep the Jews out. So to me, it's just read your history, learn about the early church, because 
the canonization of scripture that you trust this new Testament was canonized by the Catholics. So to me, there's no line. It's, it's, I, I would go back to what Chabad says. We don't tell people what to do. It's just, it's your journey. And you've got to, if you want the blessing to do this, then do it. If not, it's perfectly okay too. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not going to judge you because that's not our role here. We're not put a, my purpose on earth is not to judge for God. Who's a good Jew and who's a good follower of God and who's not. That's not why I'm here. Mm-hmm. Then I contributed my own offensive thing. Is, is conversion like an option? Like, can yeah. I be like, Hey, can I ju- join your Jew thing? Well, it's not, Hey, can I join your Jew thing? <laughs> It, it is an option, depending on where you want to convert into or form conservative orthodox, there are different levels of commitment that you have to demonstrate. Mm-hmm. So you can convert. It's not easy. And I'm not trying to get people to convert. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if somebody comes up to me, if a Christian college student comes up to me at a Jewish social and asks if she wants a bagel, it says, can I have a bagel? Is this, is it okay? And because I'm Christian, I say, well, your savior was Jewish. Why wouldn't you be able to eat a bagel that you could consider that proselytizing, right? Like I, I am challenging people's belief systems, including my own all the time. Okay. But my goal is not to get more Jews under the hood. Got it. My hope would be like, again, my purpose is I want people to have a deeper understanding of the Torah. That's it. I want people to have a deeper understanding of what the Torah actually says and not what you've been taught by your pastor that it says. Mm-hmm. Okay. But I think that you need to teach this. So I'm just going to put that out into okay. the universe. If you look at my Facebook page, that's kind of what I've been doing. Is, is your Facebook page open? No, I think okay. it's open. Okay. I think it's public. Okay. You can find Tyler's daily Torah thoughts on Facebook. Check out Tyler Miller. He shares the passage, his thoughts, and usually some good questions to think about. He also shares himself. In one post, he said, quote, This morning, my body was talking to me during meditation. I've had a knot in my stomach lately that's made it difficult to meditate. The knot is tingly, painful, and pulses. It's distracting, and I want to push it away. I've been battling this knot, but my meditation coach encouraged me to welcome it, to embrace it. It's there and it's part of me. I've been trying to welcome it and it has not been easy. This morning I heard it tell me, I am not something to be fixed. I'm something to be loved and listened to. You are not someone to be fixed. You are someone to be loved and listened to. The knot is still there, but listening to the knot has been profound. You probably didn't notice, but when Tyler is sharing his experiences and beliefs, he begins with, for me. Over and over, he said, for me. And it wasn't filler. He's thoughtful in sharing his own unique journey and is not making assumptions that it's somehow the right choice or path for everyone. And I really appreciate that inclination, the careful balance of strong opinions with the flexibility that comes with listening to others and recognizing our own limitations. 
And with that, the cat ears come down and he's off to take his daughter to swim lessons, living in just this very moment. And that was the ending when we recorded this conversation five months ago. But last week when I talked to Tyler, he told me that he and his wife are currently separated and moving toward divorce. Though he did mention some marital struggles, I didn't see this coming. He's doing okay. He said when the separation happened, he had a choice. Wallow in grief and anger or get out of bed and continue the things that had been working. He kept his meditation practice, Torah study, prayer, and therapy going. And he said that his faith has been strengthened. He believes that God is working even this for his good. But what happens when you believe 100% that your purpose in life is to be someone's spouse, and then suddenly your life has changed, and that's no longer in the cards? Well, Tyler says it's pretty straightforward. Acknowledge you were wrong, and you will be wrong again in the future, and that's okay. Join us next time to meet a sweet little Christian gal who made the big mistake of getting into yoga. Yoga.